Hello everyone, and welcome to Queer as Fiction, where we talk about queer historical media. My name is Jason. I'm Alice. And I'm Eli. And today we're talking about the origins of William Moulton Marston's DC comic superhero, Wonder Woman. Before we get into this episode, we have a couple of announcements. Firstly, as you might have seen, we have a new website. So if you would like to check out sources for our episodes and find out more about us, then head to queerisfact.com, where you can find links to all our social media and the aforementioned content. Also, you may have noticed that this episode topic is neither Frida Kahlo nor Achilles and Patroclus. We decided that the Achilles and Patroclus episode was a little grim, uh, both for you and for us right now. Uh, So instead, we're going to talk about Wonder Woman. We do have some content warnings for this episode. There will be extensive references to BDSM throughout the episode. There will also be some brief discussion of sexual assault, childhood sexual abuse, and trauma. As far as I can tell, that's it. And now, on with the episode. Aside from a brief hiatus in 1986, Wonder Woman comics have been published continuously since she first appeared in All-Star Comics No. 8 in October of 1941. She's been the subject of her own television show in the 1970s, appeared in dozens of superhero shows, both animated and live-action, and now has her own live-action film franchise directed by Patty Jenkins. In celebration of the release of Wonder Woman 1984 in the year 2020, we are pretty much exclusively going to talk about the initial 1940s run of Wonder Woman comics. (laughs) Is that movie out yet? Uh, no. Okay. Um, COVID happened, so I don't know what's happening with it. Yeah, we were originally going to time the release of this episode for the release of the movie, but I don't know exactly when that's happening, so... Nothing is certain anymore. Yeah. Okay. It's an episode, you're lucky you're getting one. <laughs> <laughs> These comics were written primarily by the psychology professor, businessman, and self-proclaimed inventor of the lie detector, William Moulton Marston, under the pen name Charles Moulton. This is an unorthodox origin story for a comics writer, and as we'll get into throughout the episode, it led to a story which didn't just draw themes from the real world, but one which put forward a direct and unique vision of society. In the words of Marston himself, frankly, Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who, I believe, should rule the world. Well, that was blonde. (laughs) He wasn't messing around. Uh, There was a 2017 film about Marston called Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, which along with the Patty Jenkins film, I believe, constitutes most of what you two have consumed when it comes to Wonder Woman's media. Like 100%. Yeah, I've watched that movie and I watched the Wonder Woman movie. That's it. That's all I know. Uh, I'm a Marvel boy and have been trained to hate DC from birth. (laughs) (laughs) I prefer my propaganda to be the Captain America style. Thank you. Goodbye. (laughs) The writer Noah Belatsky, whose 2015 book Wonder Woman, Bondage and Feminism in the Marston slash Peter comics 1941 to 1948 was a vital source for this episode, identifies three key themes in the original Wonder Woman comics. Feminism, queerness, and pacifism. I'm going to borrow these themes for our episode, starting by giving you brief biographies of the key people in Marston's life and the ways in which all three of them intersect with the early feminist movement of the 1910s. It sounds fun. This does sound fun. I can <laughs> So let's talk about feminism, and specifically how William Moulton Marston came to see not only women's suffrage, but women's dominion overall as the route to a more just and peaceful world. Much of the following biographical information about Marston and his family came from Jill Lepore's 2014 book, The Secret History of Wonder Woman, which drew on a lot of private correspondence and documentation that had not previously been available to researchers. So I remember when you were researching, you were saying one of these books was good and one of these books you complained about a lot. Just out of curiosity, which was which? Uh, Jill Lepore's book is the one I complained about. Okay. Okay. As you will see. (laughs) Okay, that's coming. (laughs) There are three important people in this story, which you two already know. 
The aforementioned Marston, his wife, Sadie Elizabeth Holloway, and their student-turned-romantic-partner-turned-inspiration for Wonder Woman, Olive Byrne. So we're going to start with William Marston. Marston was born in Massachusetts in 1893. His mother, Annie, was one of five sisters, and at 34 was the first to produce an heir to the Moulton family, which, as her historian father had fastidiously documented, could be traced back to the Battle of Hastings in 1066. <laughs> oh, like hell it could. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. I tell you this only to say that, yes, that does mean William was potentially named after William the Conqueror. <laughs> That's a bad person to be named after. I, I think, like, a lot of Williams are sort of indirectly named after William the yeah, Conqueror. Yeah, but, like, some of them them, oh, yeah, Some of them less indirectly yeah. than others. If your granddad has traced you back to 1066, then you're probably more connected to William the Conqueror than most. Yeah. So I take it that's the side of that battle that his family was on? <laughs> I guess. There wasn't that much information about this. Although I d- his father did write a whole like historical book about their family, okay. so... Probably this information exists. Okay. Otherwise, he'd be called Harry. <laughs> yeah. This same historian grandfather built a medieval manor he called Moulton <laughs> Castle after his only son's death in 1861 and was obsessed with cataloging his family lineage. Okay, so just to clarify, this grandfather who's obsessed with the family heritage, is that his mum's dad? Yes. Okay, cool. I'm just going to show you a picture of Moulton Castle because I have it. <laughs> Okay, I'm um, ready. I'm picturing like Neuschwanstein-style nonsense. That is, it's like when you're a child and you draw a picture of a castle. It's got crenellations, it's very square, it's got a tower. (laughs) In the eighth grade, Marston met Sadie Elizabeth Holloway, whose family had moved to Boston from the Isle of Man when she was young. The two quickly became inseparable. The next year, Marston was elected class president and Holloway secretary. (laughs) That's very cute. His interest in the classics was evident early via a class history he wrote in the form of a conversation with Cleo, the goddess of history. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Calm down, William. Uh, I don't anticipate he will. (laughs) He will absolutely not. As was his interest in feminism, he presided over a debate about women's suffrage, a movement that was gathering considerable steam heading into the 1910s. As many of you are probably aware, the 19th Amendment would be passed on August 18th, 1920. So that's the political environment that we're in Mm. at the moment. I was not aware, so I'm glad you shared that date with us. (laughs) (laughs) He attended Harvard, where he hated his English and history classes, but loved his philosophy classes, taught by Professor George Palmer, whose late wife, Alice Freeman Palmer, had been a suffragist and advocate for women's education. The professor refused to stop mourning his wife, saying, to leave the dead wholly dead is rude. (laughs) And was faculty sponsor of the Harvard Men's League for Women's Suffrage. I was thinking about the Men's League for Women's Suffrage. Like, I mean, I guess it makes sense to have a group of men who are like, yeah, we support women's suffrage, but I feel like they should be working with the women, not having their own league. Well, do do you know that they weren't? No, I guess it was just from the name. It just sounded weirdly segregated. Yeah, I mean, at this point, Harvard is a men's only institution. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense then. So that's kind of why. Yeah, Mm. yeah. You can't Um, have Harvard women in the league if there are no women at Harvard. Yeah, and speaking of them working with women, in the fall of 1911, the league announced a lecture series, the first speaker of which was Florence Kelly, who'd fought for a minimum wage, an eight-hour workday, and an end to child labor. So she seems pretty cool. Good on Florence. After pressure from the university to follow up such a controversial speaker with one who opposed suffrage, (laughs) the league instead doubled down and booked famous British suffragette Emmeline Pankhurst. Nice. Objectively correct. Yeah. I respect these people. (laughs) Pankhurst was barred from speaking on campus, so instead they booked a 500-person dance hall in Cambridge where 1,500 students showed up, scrambling up the walls and climbing through the windows (laughs) to see such an accomplished orator and important figure of the day speak. I love the image of somebody just, like, on the outside of the wall, like, hanging in the window to listen to... I would like to know how many people were seated in the chandelier to watch this. (laughs) (laughs) 
Marston would never forget this time. Three decades later, when he created Wonder Woman, as Lepore points out, her only weakness is that she loses all her strength if a man binds her in chains. Hmm, okay. So now let's talk about Sadie Elizabeth Holloway. Holloway, on the other hand, attended Mount Holyoke College, one of the oldest women's colleges in the United States. Women's education was controversial, but proving incredibly popular. By 1920, among the 8% of Americans between 18 and 21 who were attending college, 40% of them were women. Oh. Mm. Oh. I didn't expect that. Yeah, this share would increase dramatically between 1900 and 1920, I believe, and then would proceed to fall for the next three decades. Ah, okay, that makes more sense, yeah. The framing of emancipated and educated women as Amazons or new women was very common at the time. Mm -hmm. Holloway Mm -hmm. was a debater, a writer, and a sportswoman playing field hockey at Mount Holyoke. Sounds gay. Sounds pretty gay, yeah. (laughs) The college was a hotbed for suffragists as well as the newer, more radical feminists. One distinction between the two was on sex. As Lepore describes, women involved in the 19th century women's movement had often subscribed to the belief that women had no interest in sex, no lust, no hunger, no passion. Feminists disagreed. They wanted to separate sex from reproduction so that sex for women could be, as it was for men, about pleasure, not sacrifice. I never knew there was a difference between feminists and suffragists. There you go. Yeah, so they talk about how, like, all feminists are suffragists, but not all suffragists are feminists. Cool. In 1914, Greenwich Village feminist Margaret Sanger founded a magazine called The Woman Rebel. The basis of feminism, Sanger said, had to be a woman's control over her own body, the right to be a mother regardless of church or state. Margaret Sanger will come back into this episode later. Okay. I remember this from the field. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I was like, this name definitely sounds familiar, and now I remember why. Mm. Yeah. At college, Holloway adored the study of Greek, and according to Lepore, her favourite book was Henry Thornton Wharton's 1885 English translation of the poetry of Sappho. I would love to know what that translation looked like. Yeah, uh, she would write in her 80s that she still kept a copy of Wharton's book with her to read from. Interesting. And there's at least one example from 1969 of her signing a book as Sappho. Uh, so I, I can't remember if you literally just said this. Did she study Greek or did she just study like the classics? She, know, she studied Greek. Okay. So she knows that he's probably lying potentially <laughs> in his translation. Oh yeah, probably. Yeah. 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 Mm. yeah I think she, um, specifically enjoyed reading the poetry in the Greek. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. As someone who hasn't written a thesis on that, <laughs> not a hundred percent. I don't sure. expect you to have these answers, but I also don't know like how you could possibly have expected that I wouldn't start talking about it. <laughs> Oh, no, I banked on it. Yeah, good, good, good. In other letters, she signed Aphrodite with you. So, yeah, she was pretty extra. Mm, She does sound pretty extra. When when she signed a book as Sappho, she did it in ancient Greek. Nice. (laughs) Sappho. Marston and Holloway married after graduating college. Sadie Elizabeth Holloway became Betty Marston at William's insistence, as he didn't like the name Sadie. Uh-huh. Oh, what? Because I knew, in, I remember in the film she went by Elizabeth, and I was just like, oh yeah, a lot of people went by their middle names at that time, that's normal. But he enforced that? Yeah, I think he persuaded her I to don't... go by Betty, and he called her Betty. I don't care for that at all. Yeah, she liked the name Sadie, and as Lepore does in her book, I'm going to keep calling her Holloway to distinguish between her and William. That's fair, yeah. I'm just really annoyed that he made her change her name. (laughs) Yeah, uh, Marston is not a great guy. No. Uh, He's got a lot of interesting views, some of which are good, (laughs) but uh, some of his sort of behavior doesn't line up with his philosophy. Yeah, that's unsurprising, I guess. So now let's get to our third key player, Olive Byrne. 
Olive Byrne was born in Cornell, a city in Steuben County, New York, in 1904. After Steuben? Yes, which I mentioned only to say that it was definitely named after Baron von Steuben. Yeah. The whole county's gay. <laughs> <laughs> that makes her 11 years younger than Marston and Holloway. She was delivered by her feminist aunt, the aforementioned Greenwich Village feminist Margaret Sanger. That's such a ripe image for symbolism. Yeah. <laughs> delivered by her. Her mother, Ethel Byrne, left her two children with her parents and went to New York City to study as a nurse. After her father and grandparents died in 1913 and 1914, respectively, Olive was sent to a Catholic orphanage. Meanwhile, Ethel and Margaret were socialist feminist activists in New York City who met with people like early feminist cartoonist Lou Rogers, whose work eventual Wonder Woman illustrator Harry George Peter clearly drew some inspiration from. And I'm going to be showing Eli and Alice images throughout this episode. If you would like to follow along, I'll be posting a source document on our new website where you'll be able to see a lot of these images. So yeah, this is Lou Peter's drawing on the left and a Wonder Woman comic from the right. Hmm. I see. <laughs> I feel like it's kind of the same, but just with less clothes. Yeah. So yeah, you can see in this art of a feminist breaking chains and in Wonder Woman breaking chains that there's definitely some allegory there that's being drawn upon in the Wonder Woman comics. Mm. <laughs> Sanger and Byrne were specifically interested in the medical and sexual education of women, with Sanger popularizing the term birth control in her self-published oh. feminist monthly, Woman Rebel. Huh. Yeah, Lepore claimed that she coined the term. That that was false? Uh, yeah, as, well, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Mm. Uh, I didn't go, like, super in-depth, but I didn't want to uh, claim that. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. I feel like a lot of so-and-so coined this term uh, claims are pretty dubious, and that's a very good instinct. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it's also just so hard to prove that someone coined a term. Like, sure, they may have written it down first, but you can never know who said it before they wrote it down. Yeah, exactly. After they escalated their work in sexual education from published pieces to running in-person classes, Byrne and Sanger were charged with violating the New York State Penal Code, under which it was illegal to distribute any recipe, drug, or medicine for the prevention of conception. This was not surprising. In fact, they had planned upon it. Oh, okay, cool. That's what happened. Byrne was trialed first and found guilty in January of 1917, and was literally teaching women how to use contraception while being bussed to prison. Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining her holding a condom and a banana aloft. <laughs> From the back of a dummy bed? Yes. <laughs> like, okay, yeah. Just being like, remember to pinch the tip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does seem to be the kind of person she was. I respect. <laughs> Upon reaching prison, she immediately went on a hunger strike, inspired by Pankhurst and other contemporary suffragists. I assume she also just provided sex ed with her fellow prisoners. Like I'm just taking that as a given here. Yeah, although I imagine pretty quickly since she was hunger striking, she was probably isolated from other prisoners. That's probably true, um, yeah. And for reasons that will become apparent, she was not in much condition to be teaching people anything okay. because she was on a hunger strike. Mm. That is what a and hunger strike does which to you. affects you. Yeah, really badly. Yeah. yeah. Sanger, in an effort to increase the already intense pressure on the government and the courts to release Byrne, went to Olive's orphanage to visit her and leaked previously unknown details of Ethel's family to the press. 13-year-old Olive had no idea who Sanger was. Oh, okay. Eventually, as Ethel's health worsened, the governor of New York and Sanger came to a deal without the input of an unconscious Ethel. Ethel was bound to no longer break New York's laws on birth control. In exchange, she was pardoned. Sanger was imprisoned for 30 days after her trial and did not go on a hunger strike, allowing her freedom to agitate for the cause further upon her release. This is something that Ethel and Sanger would disagree on mm -hmm. later. Mm. Yep. 
I can't imagine the strength of conviction it would take to starve yourself to the point where you're like unconscious. Yeah, she her medical condition was being reported upon daily. Yeah, um, I'm sure in the press was, yeah. and was like a big deal. And yeah, she was not in a good way. Yeah, like mm-hmm. I I would have caved by now. Yeah, I'm very confident. By 18, Olive was living with her mother, who was part of the more radical feminist communities that believed in free love, which included homosexuality. Olive described seeing a party of eight men sitting with their arms around one another, kissing. I think this was her first exposure to homosexuality, or at least to male-male homosexuality. Mm-hmm. In the film we watched, Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman, Olive is portrayed as being like this very like young, naive person who like like she talks a bit about her connection to Sanger and stuff, but she's portrayed as being pretty naive and pretty ill-informed about this kind of stuff. Not someone who's already witnessed eight men kissing in her mum's lounge room. Yeah, and certainly I think the film simplifies. Olive mm. as a person. Yeah, um, yeah. From what you said, I would say so. So after Sanger married an oil magnate to fund the birth control movement. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Please well. continue. <laughs> In 1922, Ethel petitioned for Olive to get into a medicine degree. She wished for her daughter to become a doctor rather than a nurse like herself. Mm-hmm. Olive attended Jackson, the Women's College of Tufts University in Boston, where she was an outspoken liberal and feminist advocate. Says Lepore, At Tufts, Olive Byrne became the undergraduate source for contraception. Everyone knew she was Sanger's niece. (laughs) Always there were people when I was in college coming around asking me if I knew birth control methods, she said. The only thing was you had to go to New York to get the material. It helped if you could say you were a friend of Olive Byrne's. (laughs) If any of the people you know at school are down in New York and want to come in and get some information, you tell them to ask for me, Sanger told her. Tell them to say you sent them and we will take care of them. (laughs) So what are birth control methods at the moment? Uh, so they definitely, Lepore definitely describes the use of condoms. Okay. So I yeah. believe condoms exist. Condoms yeah. have been around. Yeah. Forever. Yeah. Um, I don't know what like medicinal methods okay. exist at this point. Olive was voted the wittiest, cleverest, and most distinctive student in the class of 1926. <laughs> nice. What a vote to hold. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if those were separate awards and she won all three or <laughs> if it's won. one award. Yeah. Both options are pretty great. If it's yeah. one award, it's kind of just like, she's just the, the best one. Yeah, like, who's the best? <laughs> Let's all vote on the best. It's all of. Yeah, her grades weren't amazing, but. But no was... one was pregnant who didn't want to be. Yeah, yeah, she was very beloved. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, it was actually really interesting. Something I didn't mention before with regards to Holloway's, when her and Marston married, she was the first member of her graduating class to marry. And this was at a time when only half of Mount Holyoke graduates ever married. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there was definitely quite a strong tradition at that point for people who attended women's colleges to yeah, be, yeah. be sort of independent women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Olive was also distinctly androgynous, wearing her hair in what was known as an Eton crop, and wearing boyish clothes that were far more common at the time in England than in the United States. Okay. Okay. Uh Uh-huh. I would like this Olive to be in the movie. (laughs) Yeah, movie Olive is much more just kind of boring and... I don't think she was boring. Uh, I think she was actually... I expected them to lean harder into her being, like, the sweet little innocent naive girl than they did. Mm. Uh, Obviously, like, not knowing anything about her as a real person at that point. Mm. So I was sort of pleasantly surprised by the assertiveness that the movie did grant her. Oh, yeah. But also, like, I would like this Olive in a movie, please. Yeah, now we know about the real Olive. It's like, why did the movie decide to lean into the sweet and innocent Olive? 
I mean, we know why. Um, yeah. also, <laughs> this is completely irrelevant, but I just love that Olive is a viable name in America. I, I love Olive. called Olive. Oh, okay. I, I, I feel like it's fallen out of favor, at least. Yeah. <laughs> but Olive's are delicious and it pleases me. Olive is a good name. <laughs> So, in 1925, while a student at Tufts, Olive Byrne met now-professor William Marston, a 32-year-old who'd been working at American University, before being arrested for fraud related to a business he ran and subsequently fired. Okay. I see. This part was not in the film. No. uh, (laughs) I'm not fair. (laughs) Yeah, the part where William Marston is somewhat of a um, P.T. Barnum-type figure, (laughs) that's that's maybe, like, putting it too harshly, but certainly he's... A a bit of a con man? Yeah, a bit of a con man, a bit of a charlatan at various points in his life. Was not at all in the film, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess the filmmakers were just one more set of people who got conned. (laughs) Yeah, he's, he's definitely depicted in the movie as, like, he's, like, a man who's just, like, very, very passionate about his work and, like, genuinely really believes in what he's doing. And, like, I'm sure that was the case for some things he was doing, but apparently for some, he was just conning people. Well, it's somewhat unclear, like, in his writings, and this is in Holloway's writing as well, mm-hmm. is they both, like, write as if they are so passionate and genuinely believe everything that they're saying. But yeah. often they'll be writing about things and they'll just be lying. Oh. So Holloway talks about how the only reason she didn't complete a PhD at Harvard is because uh, they wanted you to study German at the time. Couldn't countenance that. She just didn't want to. Why? Um, For, like, political reasons or because learning German sucks? I I don't know. (laughs) It wasn't really clear. But also, it just wasn't true. Like, there was no question of her being allowed to study – allowed to complete a PhD at Harvard at the time. Oh, okay. It was not allowed for women. Oh, okay. okay. And the, like – thesis that she talks about writing is like not her thesis it was written by marston and burn like there's uh-huh. a lot of like weird uh-huh. seemingly unnecessary lying goes on that's really interesting yeah yeah both marston and holloway want to portray themselves as the heroes of the story mm-hmm. that okay. they're telling and that's kind of a consistent theme yeah. of the only reason we couldn't do this was because there was some institution against us and, oh, okay, then, yeah, yeah. and then they'll sort of be like well the reason we've moved on from this pursuit to this pursuit is because we found that that d- didn't fulfill our goals and wasn't mm-hmm. going to like bring us what we needed so we moved here because this is what will yeah. help us achieve what yeah. we need to achieve um, which we'll see as Marston moves from academia to movies to comic books mm. mm-hmm. that's a very understandable impulse but it's not like the most sympathetic one <laughs> yeah no <laughs> so Marston was now a professor of psychology whose efforts to get first the courts and later the army interested in his lie detector experiments had largely been fruitless, but which garnered him a reasonable degree of celebrity and some supporters in academia. There were a lot of very hilarious headlines about <laughs> how the inventor of the lie detector had been arrested for fraud when he was arrested. <laughs> I mean, that is from the perspective of a journalist, like... Gold. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So Holloway was at the time working in New York as managing editor of a psychology journal that sought to teach parents how best to raise children. With birth control on the rise and therefore the number of children in each family falling, there was interest in improving the upbringings of those children who were born. That all seems good and fine. Yeah. Yeah, I would love to know the sort of child rearing advice Uh, of the day, though. (laughs) Yeah, we'll get into a little bit later how scientific Marston, Burn, and Holloway were in the way they raised their children. This sounds deeply uncomfortable already, and I'm apprehensive. So after taking one class with Marston and receiving only the second A of her degree, uh, the first A was in gym class. (laughs) 
Oh, Wait, you have to do gym class at, at college? At, at college. At the time, at least. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Byrne then took three more classes with him in spring of her senior year, receiving three more A's. She then began working as his research assistant, leading to a very interesting experiment involving sorority members, which uh, Eli and Alice will be aware of due to its depiction in Professor Marston and the Wonder Woman. Yeah. That was weird. Kind of the level of weird that uh, Australians expect of sorority events from the media, I feel. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Maybe describe it for our listeners and then we'll... Uh... Oh, yeah. We're, we're 100% <laughs> going to describe the baby party. The baby party. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that kind of concludes our sort of opening segment about kind of the history of feminism. We're now moving into the queerness. Good. Very good. So, yeah, this brings us pretty neatly to the second part of this episode where we'll discuss the queerness of their relationships and how that informed the creation of Wonder Woman. So that said, let's talk about the baby party. <laughs> Marston at the time was beginning to develop what is arguably his most lasting contribution to psychological theory, the DISC theory of dominance, inducement, submission, and compliance, which would later be adopted by all kinds of corporate HR departments and online personality quizzes with the slightly altered and disappointingly vanilla titles of dominant, influential, steady, and conscientious. <laughs> I like they kept the acronym, but they were like, we just need to uh, make this. I like how they couldn't think of another thing for dominant. <laughs> yeah. That yeah. also started with D. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I had to do one of these oh, things really? when I was applying for the current job that I hold. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, I so ha- it's still, like, a viable theory? Yeah, disc theory is oh. like, all over. I, when I say it's all over corporate HR departments, I mean in the year of our Lord 2020. I have never heard of it before. I've never had a corporate job, but, like, yikes. Yeah. Okay. I'm very unclear on, I don't know how to put this delicately, what parts of psychology are just complete nonsense? Because I'm sure that some of it is. Yeah. This is certainly complete nonsense. Okay. Okay. Yeah, okay. okay. But, um, like, it's complete nonsense that we are still, you know, using in professional settings, apparently, which only furthers my confusion about how to figure out what parts are nonsense. I guess it's like how, like, corporate HR departments love the Myers-Briggs test, which is just, like, a random personality quiz that got famous. Yeah. I yeah, wish that exactly. they'd just be more honest and ask you what your horoscope is. <laughs> Yeah, ask you what your Hogwarts house is. Yeah, I feel like that's just as viable. (laughs) So, as Marston's research assistant, Byrne took her professor to Alpha Omicron Pi, which was apparently the name of her sorority. Sure. Where, Lepore says, freshman pledges were required to dress up like babies and attend a baby party. (laughs) Good. Yep, get those laughs out. Marston later described it. The freshman girls were led into a dark corridor where their eyes were blindfolded and their arms were bound behind them. Then the freshmen were taken into a room where juniors and seniors compelled them to do various tasks, while sophomores hit them with long sticks. Okay. All of this was not only studied and written upon by Marston and Byrne for their research, but was later depicted in the Wonder Woman comics as early as the fourth issue, where Wonder Woman's best friend, Etta Candy, is shown several times ordering the punishment of her fellow sorority sisters. I wholeheartedly recommend checking out the images I've included in the source document for this episode, which depict... uh, Etta Candy sitting seemingly on some sort of throne with her sorority sisters being uh, spanked in front of her. Okay, okay. Are they dressed um, as babies? They are indeed dressed as babies. Uh, not in the first shot, but in the second. So I'm just going to show Eli and Alice these images. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, like as advertised, I guess. <laughs> There's a second one that's even more. They've got little bonnets on. But I wore the rest of my baby clothes. <laughs> Okay, yep. 
it's very interesting to learn that this really did happen because like if I picked up that comic and decided to read that comic I would be like what is this nonsense like where are they pulling this weird baby nonsense from but no it's just reality it just happened was this a common thing in sororities like this particular the baby party there's no mention of it being particularly weird for a sorority yeah but I guess I'm wondering if like this is just the type of thing that sororities did or if particularly having a baby party was a trope in like North American sororities at the time yeah, yeah. I, I don't expect you to like just know that off the top of your head, but I do think maybe it would be interesting to dig into and just do a just stuff sororities and fraternities <laughs> have done episode. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Yeah. Especially just because like, a lot of our listeners are American, but we in Australia don't really have that institution yeah. in universities. Mm. I, mean, I guess we have other weird things. Like I know some of the colleges do weird stuff. Not like this weird, but they yeah. have like effectively sort of hazing things. Yeah. But, mm. Anyway. Mm. Yeah, it's just certainly it's not part of our popular culture in the way that it is in the US. No. Yeah. Which I think also makes it really hard from an Australian perspective to kind of understand what's like normal for a sorority and what's like, oh, what the hell are you doing for a sorority? Mm. Yeah. Like yeah. how weird is a baby party? I really don't know. It's definitely weird, but how weird? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that we have a more extreme view of sororities and fraternities <laughs> than is actually yeah. true to life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, this is something I've read about before where, you know, our view of how Americans go to college. Oh, yeah. Think yeah. of them as moving interstate and, you know, attending a full-time college. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, attending full-time college and being in like college dorms like it's actually a very small percentage of americans who fulfill all those criteria mm-hmm. comparative to the number of people who are going to community college or who are going to college locally and all of those kinds of things okay um i definitely was fooled by media into thinking that that was what most americans did yeah well it's just when you think about it right the whole thing where college costs a bazillion dollars in mm. america mm. yeah like means that you have a lot of people who go to college as mature age students, a lot of people who can't afford to move across the country and attend mm. a college where they have to pay for accommodation. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot less common than media would have us believe, but obviously is still a thing and obviously does still lead to weird, weird rituals like this. So upon Burns' graduation, Marston left Tufts and the two began working together at Columbia University. The reasons for Marston's departure are unclear and it's certainly plausible that either his relationship with Olive or controversy over their now published work, which Marston describes as follows, studies of emotions reported by sophomores and upper class girls during their annual punishment of the freshman girls were made by Miss Olive Byrne and myself during the academic year 1925 to 1926 were in some way responsible for him leaving the university. Was that the title? I don't know if that was the title or if that's just how he described it in his notes. Okay. The was a little unclear in the okay. way that she wrote that paragraph. I assume that's just from uh, Marston's kind of description of work that he's done or like a resume that he wrote oh, sure, or something. Okay. Oh, yeah. Do you have an idea of what was the content of that work or like? Uh, so it was it was dealing with the disc theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll actually get into it a little bit more later. Okay. But yeah, it was basically about whether people needed dominance and what forms dominance could take and mm-hmm. that kind of thing um, oh, okay yeah we, we will we will come back to this okay <laughs> so like disc theory as methodology baby party as case study yes okay regardless Marston now had to attempt to fit his new relationship with olive into his existing marriage with holloway so holloway all this time was just in new york doing her own thing right yeah and he was with olive at yeah. 
college, uni, mm-hmm. whatever they call it. And how aware are all parties of this circumstance? Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure how aware they were initially. Okay. Okay. But this was not the first time Marston had pursued a relationship with another woman. When he and Holloway were briefly living apart towards the end of World War One, he developed a casual relationship with Marjorie Wilkes Huntley, who would later be involved in the inking and lettering of the Wonder Woman comics. Oh, Okay. Holloway would often say that no one knows more about the production of Wonder Woman than Marjorie W. Huntley, which is an interesting claim that we will come back to at the end of the episode, so keep it okay. in mind. Okay. Regardless, Marston's relationship with Byrne was altogether more serious than that with Huntley. Initially, Holloway was distraught. Lepore says she walked out the door and walked without stopping for six hours, thinking. It's a long walk, my friend. Over the course of 1925 to 1927, the trio arrived at the relationship structure they would start a family with and ultimately continue for the rest of their lives. So now we arrive at the age of Aquarius is the header that I have. Okie dokie. Did you come up with that header? Or did... Uh, no, Lepore came up yeah. with this header. <laughs> The initial stages of this involved meetings at the home of Marston's aunt, Carolyn Marston Keatley. Says Lepore, Keatley believed that she was living in the dawn of the age of Aquarius, the beginning of a new astrological age, an age of love, the new age. Okay. What does Aquarius have to do with that? Yeah, what does it mean? That's what I want to know. <laughs> I, I think there's just like an astrology thing where... We're in different ages and we move into the age of Aquarius? Yeah. Okay. Because like when... It, is it in Hair, I think, the musical? There's the song that's the Age of Aquarius, and that's in, like, the 70s. So how can that also be the Age of Aquarius, unless astrology is fake? <laughs> <laughs> I think the answer is that astrology is fake. I mean, astrology is fake, but astrology is fake with some very clear rules, and I don't feel like it can be the Age of Aquarius in 1920? Yeah, 1925. 1920 and 1970. Well, either the age, each age is quite long or quite short, and they've cycled back. That's true, I guess. I guess. It's the possibility. <laughs> I think the answer is that the ages are quite long and that, like, it's still the idea of it being the age of Aquarius in the 60s and 70s was kind of like, no, no, guys, it's the age of Aquarius. But I, I'm speaking <laughs> yeah. with very, very little knowledge okay. here. So, but ugh. so, like, the idea is that, uh, according to astrology, we're entering a new age and that happens to be the age of Aquarius. But Aquarius as a star sign does not have any particular resonance with all of this stuff. I believe that's okay. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I'm not going to stake any money on that, but I believe it's correct. I just don't know, like, the vibe of any star sign that is not my star sign, which I know a great deal about. (laughs) (laughs) From our, like, pen pal club submissions, quite a few of our uh, listeners are into astrology, so we apologize for our total lack of knowledge. (laughs) I don't apologize for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I don't apologize for our lack of knowledge. I apologize for our wild speculation about something we know nothing about. (laughs) Ten or so people attended these meetings, and the 95 pages of notes taken at these meetings involved kinky rituals, titles like love leader and mistress, and strict instructions for those fulfilling the roles of submissive and dominant, such as that the submissive partner should hold back orgasm. Wait, wait, wait. Sorry, go back. What are these meetings? (laughs) Was it? (laughs) (laughs) We got too hung up on the Aquarius, I think, then. Hosting these meetings, uh, Marston's aunt. Okay, I was just checking. It was just like in her house, or she. So she is hosting the meetings. Yeah, in her house. And Marston and Holloway Marston, and Burn are attending these meetings. Marston, Holloway, Burn, um, and a bunch Huntley of other people as well. And yes, yeah, some other people who are not okay. mentioned by Lepore. Okay. Yeah, these meetings are are depicted in a heavily adapted form in the film, in the form of the French 
figure the g-string king (laughs) which was a real twist for me when i watched the film because i'd already read this book and knew about these meetings and suddenly they were happening not only completely in the wrong decade because in the film they happen i believe in the 40s but also there was a french man here and i was like what is this isn't marston's Mm. aunt they go into like the back room of this frenchman's lingerie kind of shop and he does bondage back there yeah I think you and I were talking about this, Jason, of like it, there being this weird kind of like exoticization, an idea of it like it being this weird like French thing. Like, you know, there's that idea of, I don't think how to explain it. Um, yeah, there's definitely an idea of continental Europeans being like kinky. Yeah, so, yeah that's what I'm trying to British say. British people and Americans. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was weird to see that brought into a modern film when it didn't have to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It was um, an interesting adaptation choice. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that uh, I prefer it to the sudden presence of someone's aunt. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's fair. I guess that takes a lot of explaining to be like, now we're in Bonded Club at my aunt's house. Like, Yeah. I also, I hadn't thought about that as like a weird exotification because the continental Europeans that I know also believe this about themselves in comparison with Americans and the English. <laughs> so I had kind of just been like, yeah, that's true. That's just a <laughs> so yeah, these meetings were not exclusively sexual in nature. There was much discussion of politics and philosophy and many allusions to Marston's disc research. But between the sorority research and these meetings, Marston's view of female sexuality was developed Uh, including a view that there was no conflict between female-female friendships and male-female relationships, and the idea that lesbian sex was not only to be approved of, but could also be a way to improve sex between men and women. Okay. As Berlatsky puts it, Marston meant his ideas about gender, sexuality, and peace to be widely applicable and indeed widely transformative. These ideas would later come into full fruition during his Wonder Woman comics, with a few examples that I'm going to go through now. Okay. So in Wonder Woman 16, Balatsky describes this as making the case that the prescription for trauma is kink. Okay. Okay. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> there is. <laughs> Brace yourself. I'm braced. The comic takes a lot from the early writings of Sigmund Freud. Oh, lordy. Which proposed that the source of hysteria in adults was childhood sexual trauma. Freud himself would later renounce this early work, instead denying the possibility that such trauma could be as widespread as his experiments showed, and instead that the stories his patients told him showed their repressed sexual desires and the idea that daughters had sexual urges for their fathers. But in his early work, Mm -hmm. he very much believed the stories that his patients told him. And that is kind of the framework Marston uses when writing this Mm -hmm. one story. So in the comic, the villain King Pluto abducts women after first appearing in their dreams. The women's stories are constantly questioned and belittled. And in a choice that evokes Marston's views of malleable gender identities, Wonder Woman's love interest Steve Trevor is also abducted in a scene that puts him in a feminized position. The story of his abduction is even recounted to Wonder Woman by a traumatized female secretary who's posed in the same way Steve was on the previous page. I don't even know where to begin here. Not a Yeah, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Mm. Um, I, I am interested to hear Steve Trevor is here because I did wonder at what point he became a part of this narrative. Yeah, so Steve Trevor is 
there from the very start. Mm. The the actual the way that the uh, uh, Jenkins Wonder Woman film begins with Steve Trevor crashing yeah. on Themyscira is basically the beginning of okay. how the Wonder Woman okay. comics started. Yeah, uh, Belatsky talks extensively about the way that Steve Trevor is kind of emasculated and mm-hmm. feminized in mm-hmm. those early comics, in that he is. You know, his plane has crashed and he's injured and he has to be cared for and nursed back to health. And he isn't really this adventurous man of action. Mm-hmm. He's very much just being looked after by Diana throughout those early comics. As Bolatsky puts it, by having her echo and even adopt Steve's trauma, she emphasizes the fact that despite his male body, his trauma is structurally linked to Persephone's and Laurie's. So in the comic, uh, the original story of King Pluto is, I believe, related to a assault of Persephone. And then uh, Laurie is this um, sorority member who's friends with Etta Candy who gets kidnapped. Mm-hmm. The story involves copious depictions of powerless women captured by King Pluto and then later freed by Wonder Woman when she overthrows the king. The art emphasizes how Wonder Woman replaces Pluto, standing where he once stood and viewing the captured women now seeming to belong to her. Which There's so much to unpack here. Yeah. I just don't know what to do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so overwhelmed. Which brings us back to the baby party research. Marston firmly believed in the idea that women could enjoy a position of sexual dominance as much as men, particularly over other women. And he saw no contradiction between the idea that some forms of dominance could be traumatic and coercive, while others could be nurturing and healthy. Indeed, this is among the most vital arguments of disc theory. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Basically, Marston thought that dominance was bad, but inducement was good. So what's inducement as... What's inducement? <laughs> There's a lot of in-depth theory that he goes into okay. here. I'm really uh, bad at theory, so... Uh... <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I, I suspect that he's also bad at this theory. So we're so. we're just we're just lost. It's it's over. Yeah. yeah, and basically, it's this idea of Marston finding masculine shows of aggression and domination to be negative, while feminine methods of domination that were kind of more subtle and mm-hmm. um, more about inducing people to behave in mm-hmm. the way that they wanted. He found those very positive and wanted to have that be the structure upon which society was founded. Okay. And by masculine and feminine, does he mean uh, masculine-coded behaviors and feminine-coded behaviors that could hypothetically be utilized by uh, men or women to be be reductive? I assume he's dealing with a sex minor here. Mm -hmm. Um, Or does he literally mean like men and women? Uh, no, he he means that either men or women could engage in these masculine or mm-hmm. feminine okay. um, methods of domination and submission. And we'll get into a little more about uh, his views on how that people's gender identities mm-hmm. could inform that dominant submissive yeah. framework. Um, yeah, I mean, as we've been saying, there's a lot to unpack here and... I, I just I don't know that we can unpack it without going through a lot of his work, but I am kind of enjoying the fact that although I'm sure in in detail and perhaps like in his actions as opposed to what he writes down, a lot of this is quite dodgy. But it's not just like it doesn't sound just out and out bad. Mm. Like it mm. sounds like there's a lot of interesting stuff here and probably like elements on of it that we could build on in a productive way as opposed to it just being like bad nonsense. From yeah. 
the early 20th century. Yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of how I feel about a mm. lot of his philosophy is that I'm like, okay, you've definitely got some weird views and some of it is just kind of self-serving. Yeah. Mm. Um, like the idea that uh, lesbian sex could enhance male female yeah, sex I, is kind I, of, you know, there's definitely an element of self-serving. That's about him. Yeah, that's yeah. about him, right? I, I did think of that as an example of something that could, like, if we heard more about that one particular idea of his could be quite dubious, but also, like, isn't objectively wrong. Like, I'm, I'm thinking about how sex within relationships with queer women tends to – like, women tend to orgasm mm. much more frequently within those relationships and, and so forth. And Yeah, and, and like, yeah, I think, I think there have been studies about, like, how queer women tend to orgasm more regardless of whether or not they're with yeah. women. Yeah, okay. yeah. Of, so- of, like, I, I think it's certainly something that, like, bisexual women – I know feel like exploring their sexuality with women has made their sex lives better in general because they're able to kind of like own their sexuality and explore what they're actually into as opposed to just sort of going through the motions of what we expect like straight sex to have to be like and that that like then improves their sex life in general and so forth. And obviously like the point of that is not like, and then it's great for the men. Yeah. (laughs) But like it does mean that the sex that they have with men is better. Yeah, yeah, and it's that thing where it's kind of self-serving, but it's also kind of true and good. And mm. uh, that's just something that mm. informs a lot of how Marston's work mm. can be mm. viewed. So, yeah, to go back to that idea of malleable gender, we can look at Sensation Comics number two. This issue features the seemingly male Dr. Poison, who, in the words of Berlaski, uses an intimidatingly large needle to menace a strapped-down Steve Trevor. I see. Okie Which uh, certainly has some obvious connotations. <laughs> Eventually, it's revealed that Dr. Poison is, in fact, a woman. If you remember, she actually appears in the Patty Jenkins film. She's the Oh right, okay. Yeah. I don't remember. She's the woman with the like mask. Um Oh yeah yeah yeah. Who like creates the poisons. Yeah. Yeah, that are kind of the like plot MacGuffin. Mm. Yeah. And on the last page of that comic, Wonder Woman's ally Etta Candy is shown spanking Dr. Poison. So we kind of see this sense of sexual and gender fluidity, um, and also this idea of that this is something that's very important to Marston, this idea that Everyone should be dominated. Even if you are someone who is dominant, it is, like, natural and good for you to be dominated. Basically, William Marston says switch rights (laughs) (laughs) and thinks everyone should be a switch. And this is very emblematic of Marston's philosophy and the early run of Wonder Woman comics. That's not so much switch rights as, like, switch conscription, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) And finally, on this kind of broad topic comes uh hypnota who first appears in wonder woman number 11 the stage hypnotist is shown performing his show which is less a magic show than a drag performance in which the audience (laughs) sees a man turn into a woman and then back into a man uh it turns out that not only is hypnota a woman he which balatsky says seems to be his preferred pronoun based on how the character is presented in the comic okay okay. has an identical twin Um, Once again, there's just too much to unpack. Whose place he often takes in order to subvert expectations and fool Wonder Woman. Is the identical twin like a man or The identical a woman, twin is a woman. Or... Okay. So yeah, they're twin sisters, okay. but one of them goes by he and often adopts a male persona, for want of a better word. Okay. 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 
The uncertainty that drag creates in the story with scenes where even upon rereading it is unclear which twin was present is obviously a theme that many academics have drawn upon when discussing the place of drag in creating queer identities, most famously in the work of Judith Butler. However, in Marston's work, and this is another instance where Marston's kind of personal views, I feel, inform his general philosophy, Mm. drag inevitably reveals femininity. His view of gender is ultimately somewhat binary, but it's based specifically in a view of kind of female superiority. Balatsky has a great line, which I haven't actually included here. It's just kind of, you peel back the layers and like it's women all the way down. (laughs) (laughs) This can be seen in the writings we do have from Marston about male homosexuality. So despite his view of lesbianism being positive, sometimes to the point of effusiveness, he is quite negative about male uh, homosexuality. Okay. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so is this just like, well, this isn't relevant to my personal life? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh-huh. Again, okay. um, I feel like uh-huh. if his philosophy was more consistent, he would not be negative about this, but yeah. his philosophy is kind of somewhat based on what is convenient to him. Yeah. He's got no reason to sort of be emotionally predisposed to find a way to think about this in a positive light, so he just doesn't. Yeah. Balatsky describes his views as follows. Boys, he argues, are physiologically unable to induce love responses in each other, and male-male relationships are essentially egotistical. Oh, shut up. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, we have reached the objectively bad throat in the bin part of this episode. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of this, and Balatsky talks a lot more about this, and I'm not going to go like super in-depth on this, but Belasky talks about how Marston clearly had some kind of repressed urges regarding his own gender um, and like his mm. views of female superiority. There's definitely an argument to be made that there's like if if he had lived in a different era, he might have you know not necessarily been a trans woman, but like certainly had trans feminine tendencies and like. Mm. Oh, okay, know. that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. like certainly his yeah his view of female superiority. And his positioning of women in the hierarchy and kind of Mm, women-women relationships. Uh, Yeah, I guess that's actually a really obvious question to ask now you think about it. Yeah, this isn't just about his sex life. This is about him. Yeah, Mm. yeah. So now let's sort of jump back into the uh, timeline. Hmm. The responses of the trio to these meetings uh, with Marston's aunt and other people (laughs) were varied. Says Lepore... Marston's interest included what he called captivation and Huntley called love-binding, bondage. Imagining what happened in those meetings at Keatley's apartment, Holloway once told her children, would require great flexibility in your thinking and the wide extension of your mental horizons in your exploration of what is against what is not. Olive Byrne seems to have thought the whole thing was a little ridiculous. She also thought Huntley was nuts. <laughs> that woman's a lunatic, she used to say. Okay, okay. Uh, I mean, first of all, love-binding is like a lovely thing to call one. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah, great. it's pretty cute. Yeah. So that said, it was these meetings that cemented the relationship between Marston, Holloway, and Byrne. They considered it a development of the free love ideology that Margaret Sanger and Ethel Byrne espoused, and which Holloway considered to be untenable. This relationship structure and the compromises it involved ultimately proved incredibly useful for Holloway. They allowed her to pursue the twin goals of a career and a family. So the agreement which they came to was that Olive was to stay at home and raise the children, initially Holloway's and later her own. She married 
Marston on November 21st, 1928, after which she began wearing a pair of close-fitted, wide-banded bracelets, which would inspire Wonder Woman's famous armbands, which is interesting because in the film, she's already wearing the armbands when mm. she meets mm. uh, Marston in the hallway. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I need to interject at this point to say that the day they got married is my birthday. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so when you say they got married, do you know what that looked like? No. Okay. I don't know what if there was any kind of ceremony to it, aside from the fitting of these armbands, but um, certainly they did celebrate it as their anniversary, and it's like in their private journals as like, okay. oh, we had our anniversary the other day, or like one of us forgot, or you know, ah, things like yeah. that. So they did treat it like a wedding anniversary. Yeah. Holloway got pregnant in December 1927. Olive Byrne dropped out of Columbia in the spring of 1928 to prepare for the baby, just as the book she'd been helping Marston write, Emotions of Normal People, finally appeared, published under his name alone. Okay, so is she happy with all this? Lepore doesn't talk a lot about how happy she was in the relationship specifically, Mm -hmm. but certainly she did have some measure of professional success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Olive did, like, hold a lot of work. Like, she um, wrote a lot of reviews and she she did a lot of writing, um, but she would, like, mail in her work. Uh And... Yeah, I, yeah, I just don't have a lot of information about how Olive specifically felt mm. about the whole mm. thing. But certainly, she stayed with them and continued to be in that relationship mm. and raise mm. those children and conduct research into them with Marston. Holloway, meanwhile, was working as an editor in the New York offices of the Encyclopedia Britannica. She edited more than 600 articles for the 14th edition of the Encyclopedia, the first major revision since 1910, and the Mm. first to have two staffs, one British and one American. Hmm. I just thought that was neat. That is pretty neat. I thought that was interesting and kind of important to include because in the film, Holloway doesn't seem to have much of a career. No, no. Yeah, it's presented as it's impossible for her after she leaves Radcliffe or yeah. Harvard. Whatever. Yeah. And that's very much not the case. As we'll get into, she was often the one who was most reliably employed out of the three. Yeah, because I think it's presented in the film like they kind of have no income and then William's like, I'd better start writing comics to get us some money. Well, she in the movie kind of just has to accept the fact that her career is over and becomes a secretary, which is oh, not very happy Oh, that's right. About. She does become a secretary. And yeah. then as a secretary from there on out, yeah. I believe. Yeah, certainly yeah. she gives up on being a lawyer, which had been her ambition, because it just was very hard for women to become lawyers mm-hmm. at yeah. the time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even with incredible grades, which she had. Yeah. Um, like mm-hmm. it's There's stories about how she, when her and Marston completed the bar exam, she completed it like way faster than he did. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. her grades were better in her classes than his. Yeah. But realistically, neither of them ended up as uh, successful. It's not like Marston did particularly well in law. But yeah, so Emotions of Normal People gets published, and it defends the validity of homosexuality, transvestitism, fetishism, and sadomasochism. It was bold, but not ultimately particularly successful, particularly in America, with one of the only reviews of it to appear in the United States being written by Byrne herself in the <laughs> Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology. The ways in which Marston, Holloway, and Byrne accredited authorship are described by Lepore as having an extraordinary slipperiness. And between the business fraud, the academic sensationalism, and the lack of clear delineation of authorship, it is perhaps unsurprising that Bolatsky describes Martin as a shameless carny. <laughs> okay. 
Yeah, it's hard to know what their decision-making process was. I don't know if you have this information behind the scenes about like whose name would be on the book. But knowing that it didn't, the book didn't get much reaction, then Olive wrote a review of it. Like, you can't have your name on a book you're going to review. So like, it's possible he was like, yeah, I'll write the book. I'll put my name on the book. And you'll put your name on the reviews about how great the book is. And that way we'll get our book going. How much clout does Olive have as a reviewer, though? Like, how much yeah, is her true. opinion able to sway public interest or regard for this work? I don't think particularly much. Like, she wrote reviews, but wrote reviews for publications. I don't think it was ever a case of her voice specifically being Mm. particularly Mm -hmm. as a reviewer. Yeah, because if, like, that's the case, it seems strange to sort of be Mm. like, oh, you can, you know, write all these reviews about how great my work is. Yeah. And it'll be a whole scam. Yeah, and certainly at various points, like, Holloway in her notes often refers to having written particular pieces that are written by Byrne and hmm. like it's very unclear who wrote what in, hmm. with regards to all this research and also then who claimed what and yeah. then mm-hmm. who, who was published under what and oh that's such a mess that's a whole giant mess mm. yeah uh, I don't know. <laughs> so after this, Marston's lectureship at Columbia was not renewed, and in his scramble to find another appointment, he turned to his alma mater. Lepore had access to the private letters supporting or responding to his application, and while there was some positivity, it is clear that Marston's unorthodox love life and views were hurting him professionally. In a letter marked confidential for office only, Marston's former advisor, Herbert Langfeld, who had taught both Marston and Holloway, said the following. He has had several positions which he has not been able to hold. Rumours have come to me from these various places, which I have not been able to substantiate. It therefore makes it very difficult for me to say anything further than that when he took his degree at Harvard, he gave every promise of doing excellent work. As Lepore puts it, with a letter like that in his file, no one would hire Marston, ever. It was blacklist language. It was the kind of thing said about homosexuals. Marston never again secured a regular academic appointment. I guess it's time to write some comic books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but first, Hollywood, baby. <laughs> I would love it if the sort of default career that uh, failed academics went into was not teaching, but producing propaganda-filled comic books. Yep. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah, so Marston had a growing family to support. In total, there were four children, two each born by Byrne and Holloway. He briefly pursued a career as a Hollywood psychological consultant, working for- That's a job? Yeah, it hadn't been, but uh, there was controversy about films. Uh, As you'll see, this is kind of how he gets into comics as well. Okay. Is that if there's controversy about a medium, then you need someone with kind of scientific authority to speak on your behalf, and so having a psychological consultant was something that was considered important. Yeah, he worked for Universal Pictures and was an early proponent of the talkies, which was (laughs) a new and exciting uh, medium of film at the time. Did they think the talkies were going to take off? Or yeah, he he was real keen on the talkies. He was like, "This is this is the this is the wave," and you know, obviously, and he was, was. right. <laughs> I understand there are a lot of uh, disgruntled pianists around this time. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this career stalled as well, and the family returned from a brief stint in Los Angeles to New York, where Marston started a motion picture company just days before the Wall Street collapse. And how did it go? Uh, yeah, terrible. <laughs> Throughout the thirties. And this is where we're kind of going to speed up a little bit in terms of our jolly adventure through the timeline. (laughs) Um, Throughout the 30s, the family was supported largely by Holloway, as Marston could not hold down a steady job. Byrne and Marston continued their experiments on their own children, IQ testing them and keeping extensive scientific notes on their development. Okay. I was going to say that's not okay, but it's like writing notes 
that's okay. Experimenting on your children, that's not okay. Yeah, I think by experimenting, it's mostly observation okay. of their development. Okay. Yeah, I think that that's still a bit dubious, though. Like yeah, there's, there's yeah. difference between any standard baby book and what they're doing. So it's kind of not just observation. Yeah. Yeah, and certainly, um, yeah, the IQ testing, I believe Lepore refers to it having led to like competition between the two. Oh, children. okay. Yeah, that's not example. okay. That's not okay. One way Marston tried to earn an income during this time was through writing fiction, where he wrote what Balatsky calls a pseudo historical pulp softcore novel called <laughs> Venus With Us, A Tale of the Caesar. Of the Caesar. Oh, yeah. Do you know anything more about the content of this novel? I think. Oh, don't worry. We're getting... Okay. Good, good, good. I'm intrigued. Says Bolatsky in a quote that both he and I feel represents Marston's <laughs> most enthusiastic endorsement of lesbianism. In it, Marston imagines a sensual orientalist Roman past filled with eroticized slavery and same-sex love. It includes one notable scene in which Caesar watches as... Lesbian dancing girls abandon themselves in an orgy of rhythmic ecstasy. Oh no, Marston, stop stop accidentally referring to yourself as Caesar in your notes. I think it's probably what happened to you. Yep. This is very uncomfortable. Um, um. In an even more definitive, if not more explicit speech, Cleopatra expounds upon the virtues of lesbianism. Ah, Caesar commented thoughtfully, you and Berenice? We loved each other. Oh, terribly. I worshipped her. She was my Isis. Our love was the most sacred thing that I have ever had in my life. Cleopatra's voice became soft as velvet and indescribably sweet. You know, Gaius, they teach a great truth in our school. Woman is made for love. She knows how to love and how to be loved. Consequently, if a loving couple is composed of two women, it is perfect. All right. I mean, I, I don't feel like this like fundamentally adds anything to our understanding of Boston. <laughs> no, this is yeah. all in character. Yeah. Look, I, I weighed up whether to include this, but I just found it very funny that he wrote this like weird historical porn. <laughs> like, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah, the main character is indeed Julius Caesar and uh, Gaius. <laughs> I just found it weird that she referred to him as Gaius. I don't know, like he also like dresses as a woman at various points. Caesar was accused of dressing as a woman in his life, and so this is to definitely this is definitely Marston's like self insert. Yeah, sometimes in drag, very positive about lesbianism. I think Marston has some stuff he needs to work through. Yeah. Yeah, you could say that. So that kind of brings us to the end of the queerness part okay. of the episode. We are going to talk a little bit more about queerness with regards to the real people involved. Hmm. Um, I wonder what would have happened if people uh, over the last like couple thousand years didn't have the classics to help them work out all of their sexual issues. <laughs> <laughs> would they have uh, they have just not thought about them at all, or would they have worked through them in a more Healthy. Direct way, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, what did they do in other cultures that didn't have they have the this to turn to? Oh, they've got their own classics. I'm sure. <laughs> do they just turn to their own classics? I don't know. I'm not sure. So we now reach our third theme, that of pacifism. As the 30s ended and war brewed, the medium of comics dominated the popular culture of the United States. In 1940, the average DC comic issue sold 800,000 copies. Oh my gosh. Today, that number's more like 35,000. Mm. Oh. Uh, how's Marvel doing at the time? I just <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> it is a shame. There's a lot of interesting uh, comics history at this time, as you're obviously about to allude to, but I don't know that uh, any of the Marvel stuff gets quite as gay, so I don't know if we're going to come back here. <laughs> <laughs> this is the closest you'll get. Yeah. So, however, with this influence came greater scrutiny, and the reactionary movement that would eventually lead to the Comics Code Authority of the 1950s had begun to find its voice. Superman looked, says Lepore, to a lot of people like a fascist. What? Yeah, this was a thing that Superman was being accused of. 
uh, at the time was being a fascist icon. Um, Justifiably, would you say? Or? Uh, well, I mean, obviously, there's definitely some like Ubermensch stuff going into the creation of Superman, and there's a lot of like, well, he's a superior being literally a superman um and <laughs> a superman maybe you'd say <laughs> and um and you know people sort of thought well is he going to be you know is he sort of this archetype of this being who sh- is better and should take over mm, and people were like that's a little fascist and mm. i'm like well uh, i i haven't read original mm. run of superman comics so i don't know yeah um i uh like as i probably made clear i haven't read early superman comics either and i don't really know anything apart from like vaguely what i've heard from other comic fans but i've heard people uh just like people talk about the creation of steve rogers by like jewish comic creators i've Mm. heard very similar things about superman it's surprising to me in my vague maybe completely (laughs) off-base knowledge that okay apparently he's also like kind of fashy <laughs> yeah i don't know that these were fair super fair criticisms i think they were just as i said there's there's a lot of reactionaries who are mm-hmm. concerned about the influence of comic books over the mm-hmm. youth yeah mm-hmm. um you know which is something that people being concerned over the influence of media on the youth is uh-huh. going to continue to be sure, an issue yeah. forever but yeah so the publisher of uh the man of steel charles Gaines, sought out a consulting psychologist to help provide an academic argument for the health of the medium mm-hmm. And who does he find but William Moulton Marston? Why does Marston still have credibility to talk about these sorts of things? That's a good um, question. He doesn't really have credibility in academia, uh-huh. but he has he's pretty good at publicity. Oh, okay, sure. That makes and, sense. And you know, the fact is he's worked for Universal Pictures, he's been a professor. Yeah. You know, he's published books, like Yeah. He has, and you know, he's the inventor of the lie detector. Yep. Uh, yeah. Okay. So he's not being invited to speak at universities, but he would be invited to speak on the Today Show. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so Marston's solution for Gaines was both sincere and self-serving. A superheroine. <laughs> that's a character. Yeah, that's basically his motto: a superheroine to serve as a tonic to the criticism of violent fascist men in comics. He hired Henry Peter, a 61-year-old who'd drawn suffragist comics, as the artist. Marston himself was 48 by this stage. Both were ancient by the standards of the comics industry. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Wonder Woman was to be sexy to sell more comics, patriotic to rival then-popular Captain America, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, wielding braces rather than guns. Uh, even the NRA at the time was opposed to private firearm usage. The prevailing <laughs> What a world. <laughs> yeah, the prevailing political opinion was that guns were for the military during World War II. And she was to be strong and independent, providing a positive role model to encourage female readership. Okay. She's also going to get tied up a lot. (laughs) Yes. She was to be the pacifist love leader, fighting fascism with feminism. Some of the early scripts were written by Olive, and her resemblance to the superheroine was certainly no coincidence. Um, Like, down to, like, really little details, like, they're both really fast typists. (laughs) (laughs) I thought no wonder one was a fast typist. There you go. Yeah. Um, So some of the early scripts were written by Olive. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, once again, the uh, accreditation of authorship yeah. is mixed. Slippery. Yeah. Slippery, yes. <laughs> um, Wonder Woman in these comics fought for unions, advocated for women's employment, and tackled heartless husbands. The comics themselves included inserts of historical Wonder Women, teaching a generation oh. of youth about women's history. That's cool. Mm. Yeah. Nice. She was incredibly popular, becoming only the third superhero to be syndicated in newspapers after Batman and Superman. Huh. 
She was also incredibly controversial. Marston had succeeded in deflecting accusations of fascism in comics only by generating even more overwhelming criticism of Wonder Woman's supposed indecency and backlash against the constant depiction of bondage and kink. <laughs> I've included some examples. <laughs> okay, we're ready. Uh, we have images of uh, Wonder Woman tied up by tentacles. We have images of uh, Wonder Woman mind-controlling a man who says, I must obey Wonder Woman always. We have images of Wonder Woman being whipped and spanked by small children. Okay. Okay. I do not have time to go into that story, Alrighty. but... Balatsky does. If you if you want to read Balatsky's <laughs> book and read more about that, then please feel free. It's a really entertaining read. Um, there's also images of Amazons uh, on Themyscira being uh, tied up and presented as a sort of ceremonial feast. It, obviously, they're not actually eaten, okay. but uh, it's kind of they're ceremonially and uh, uh, metaphorically eaten by Wonder Woman. Oh, so, I yeah, see. Wonder what Woman- does that entail in practice? Please tell me. Uh, well, you'll get to see a screenshot. Okay. Um, and the last one I'm going to show you uh, depicts more tentacles, this time of the more like plant-like variety, okay. uh, who are ostensibly under the control of a male supervillain. Okay. But he's trying to kidnap a male scientist, and the tentacles kind of have a mind of their own and go after a young woman instead, the scientist's daughter. And so there's definitely some like you can't control female sexuality stuff going on here that uh, Velatsky talks about once Wait, again. Wait, is the plant a woman? Uh, it's definitely presented in a feminine way. I'd oh. Okay. Okay. So yeah. he's like, I'm going to use my feminine plant to seduce this male scientist, and the plant's like, sorry, I'm a lesbian. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that good summary, Alice, of like several pages of Velatsky's work. <laughs> um, once yeah. again, I feel overwhelmed. <laughs> Okay, so I'm just going to show you guys some images. Oh, man, those children are spanking Wonder Woman. (laughs) Okay. I'm really glad that children don't actually say things like, this is the way we brand you. The red mark of displeasure will remain with you until the smart from the spanking wears off. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's all these babies, like real babies, just like standing up in a like gang. Oh, yeah, I hadn't even seen those babies. I was distracted by the fact that she was being spanked by seven-year-olds. But there is a gang of babies cheering it on. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think this is the, the eating one, but I can't see it very well. Okay. Mm. So I couldn't really see that well enough to understand how that plant is a woman, but I support her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and suddenly... Uh, for example, in that first screenshot you saw with the tentacles, whilst it's a again, whilst it's a male villain, the psychic powers that allow these tentacles to be created are being channeled through his wife, who okay. he's kind of controlling, but then the way that Wonder Woman resolves the issue is by lassoing the woman and commanding her to um, use the tentacles against the male villain and there's this general theme of like power in the Wonder Woman universe is derived from women even when it's men who are who controlling are villains, it yeah they're often trying to utilize women's power okay that's interesting um, so what does the lasso do in that instance it controls her yes okay. so this is something that is uh pretty much only in the Marston run uh-huh. um and is dropped afterwards where the lasso of truth yeah. uh, wonder woman's golden lasso that's kind of her signature weapon is not just a lasso of truth it's also it also compels people to do what wonder woman commands okay that is different yeah yes and frankly more on brand yeah 
No. <laughs> I mean, he did also he did also invent a lie detector, so like mm. truth is also on brand for him. Yeah, but yeah, it it, it certainly had that function. Mm. But the the compelling truth, and he even like there's a lot of like little references to historical people in his life, and he takes jabs at people like there was a judge who refused to utilize Marston's then revolutionary uh, lie detector technology with good reason. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Marston depicts a judge who is, you know, sort of a bumbling idiot <laughs> um, who uh, Wonder Woman is called to the stand and she uses her, her lasso of truth to compel testimony. Mm. And it's like, this is clearly alluding yeah, to yeah, yeah. Rude, uh, that frankly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he does the same thing with like professors that he didn't like. <laughs> All this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's not entirely negative. Sometimes it's like negative, but also like just an homage to that person. Oh, yeah. It's a whole thing. Um, but yeah, so as you can see, certainly there was some merit to the criticisms that there was a lot of bondage in these Wonder Woman comics. Uh, as an aside, like some modern responses to depictions of bondage in classic Wonder Woman claim that it was just like the norm at the time. Um is that because they've just done zero research? Yeah, well, it's people who were just like, oh, well, this isn't particularly kinky or this isn't particularly gay because that's just how comics looked at the time. Just like they didn't know about bondage in the 30s. Is that kind of the argument here? Yeah, I guess. Uh, okay. um, but as Bolatsky points out, according to Tim Hanley, fully 27% of the Marston Peter Wonder Woman included bondage compared to only 3% for Captain Marvel, <laughs> another character who got tied up quite a bit. I'm glad that they did the statistical analysis. Yeah, I'm that is pretty fun. I objective would numbers. love to have, like, be the research assistant who had to do that statistical analysis. <laughs> Just count how many panels have bondage. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Marston fought back against these criticisms, being consistently emphatic about the importance of bondage to the storytelling in Wonder Woman. To him, such depictions were not sadism, as Wonder Woman and the other characters in the stories enjoyed their submission. Said Marston, wars will only cease when humans enjoy being bound. I mean, we might as well give it a go. (laughs) (laughs) This sort of brings together our themes of feminism, queerness, and pacifism. And I've got one final quote from Malatsky, who puts Marston's views thusly. There is no way to imagine liberating yourself from bondage without imagining bondage with all its connotations. And that's kind of seems to be a pretty good illustration of the guiding philosophy of Marston's work. Hmm. Before the censors could get their way, Marston's deteriorating health meant his assistant, Joy Hummel, took over more and more of the scriptwriting duties. He contracted polio in 1944, then cancer. Oh, and- I didn't know adults could get polio. I thought yeah. only kids got polio. I don't know. Oh, okay. And then he died in 1947. Uh, Hummel, who had supported Marston's vision of the character, got married. And so she left the comics and they were left kind of without a guiding voice who believed mm-hmm. in the philosophy upon which Wonder Woman had been founded. Holloway wanted to take over um, writing Wonder Woman, but DC publisher Jack Leibowitz disagreed, instead handing the reins to Robert Kaniger, who abandoned the feminism, the historical inserts, and reined in Wonder Woman's power and independence from men. Just sounds kind of worse. Yeah, and it was like fully 25 years before Wonder Woman really got back to being anything close to Wonder Mm. Woman. And so how did that get reintroduced? Like, who, like, did someone take it over? Who? Yeah, so it was part of, um, so the sort of 70s feminist movement, specifically like Gloria Steinem put mm. Wonder Woman on the cover of the first Miss magazine. Mm. And sort of in collaboration with DC Comics, they like reprinted some of Marston's oh, original cool. work. 
And that kind of led to this, you know, there was sort of all these like, you know, 25 to 30 year old women who'd grown up reading Wonder Woman comics mm-hmm. who were like, this character is not what she should be. Mm-hmm. And that kind of led to this reintroduction of a more powerful Wonder Woman. Mm, okay. That's cool. Um, yeah. Like she was not even a superhero for at various points. She was just Diana Prince and she like was a detective kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and has that waned again now or has it sort of gone from strength to strength since the 70s and 80s? I think so. Certainly, Wonder Woman has never gone back to being this kind of powerless figure. Um, mm. Like, at certain mm. point, she was, like, the secretary for the Justice Society of America mm. and that kind of thing. Wow, I hate it. And, yeah, certainly, obviously, there's been better runs and worse runs, mm. but her status as a kind of iconic, powerful mm. female superhero I don't think has ever really been questioned since then. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you uh, know, certainly in a lot of the uh, DC stuff that I've been exposed to, so like the animated series and the video games, which is kind of where I've encountered them because I've read a lot of comics. Mm-hmm. Certainly Wonder Woman is one of it's the big three. It's Batman, yeah, Superman, yeah, Wonder sure. Woman, right? And they are presented as like the leaders of the Justice League yeah. on mm-hmm. as kind of a default and anything aside from that is kind of a deviation from the norm. Mm. So you mentioned that DC reprinted some of that early run. Was there any discomfort or like more sort of nuanced explorations of some of the kind of like bondage elements and things like that by 70s feminists? Yeah, so they were a little uncomfortable with some of the I would imagine of so. <laughs> yeah, and um cuz that's yeah. certainly an era that's ripe for uh, competing feminist interpretations of, of things around sex in general. Um, yeah, and I think um, 70s feminists didn't really want to engage too much with the weirder aspects of Wonder Woman. Um, they appreciated the more powerful vision mm-hmm. of her um, and the feminist vision and even the sort of lesbian vision mm-hmm. of Wonder Woman. But the kink stuff was kind of kept to a minimum in the stories that were reprinted. Um, they often tried to find the one where there was a bit less bondage, <laughs> mm-hmm. which was difficult, but they, they did their best. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there was kind of a reluctance to engage with that. Okay. And has that status quo kind of remained until now, insofar as you're aware? Uh, I'm not sure. Sorry. That's fair. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't keep going with my that, that history. That <laughs> makes sense. Um, yeah, I would just be really interested to see, like, if we did that sort of statistical analysis now of mm. major DC comics, if mm. Wonder Woman still has more sort of bondage elements in it, even just as a kind of hangover from the fact that people would have been more used to seeing her in those sorts of situations. And so maybe it seems more natural to throw that in a little bit for people without them really questioning why in a way that it doesn't for Batman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. I think there's always going to be, like, more bondage in Wonder Woman than in most other comics just purely because her main weapon is a lasso. Sure, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, mm. I don't, Yeah, I'd have to do a bit more research into modern versions of Wonder Woman. So after Marston's death, Byrne and Holloway lived together for the rest of their lives, with Byrne dying in 1990 and Holloway in 1993. Mm. So they had pretty good runs. Yeah, that's yeah. a long time. Like, especially this. for Holloway, Holloway that's, she lived to 100 years old. Oh, oh my gosh. gosh. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, or maybe 99. I don't, I don't know. Whatever. <laughs> that, is, that counts. Yeah, yeah, basically 100. She lived in 100 different years. <laughs> <laughs> 
According to Lepore, Marjorie Huntley would continue to visit the two women throughout their life together, sleeping in Holloway's room when she did. Okay. Does Holloway sleep in Burns' room or Holloway's room? Or do we not know? <laughs> no, no. Hol- Holloway, Holloway and Huntley sleep in the same okay, room. Okay, okay. So while Lepore downplays the potential of a relationship between the two women, her book did involve working closely with the children of Marston, Byrne, and Holloway. Mm-hmm. Unlike the depiction in the film, where the polyamorous relationship in the family is quite open within the household, in reality, the parents kept the information strictly away from their children. Even after Marston's death, the two women kept up the lie that Olive had married a man who had died soon after the birth of their second child for decades. And it was only, I believe, when one of the children got married and the, like, daughter-in-law was like, what is going on here? Clearly what you've said is a lie. Clearly there's something with this family and you need to open up about it because the lie was very flimsy. (laughs) Like, the, the, like, name that they came up with for this father, like, I believe, like, either William or Moulton or Marston was, like, in his name. It was just, like, so obviously a lie. So it was just like, your father was William Moulton and your father was William Marston. Not quite, but it was definitely, (laughs) like, it was really silly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, yeah, there was, like, a daughter-in-law who was just like, I'm not putting up with this. And it was at that point when all the children were adults that the Mm -hmm. two mothers finally revealed the parentage of all of them how Um, did the kids react do you know laporte doesn't really talk much about it okay um she kind of interviewed them but i guess because i'm like at least some of them are still alive yeah yeah yeah. and so i think laporte was like all right i'm not gonna talk about that or maybe she wasn't allowed to yeah that's fair um it is interesting that they were very dedicated to keeping this a secret within their own household but also that their lie was like flimsy poorly constructed yeah, I mean, I think they really – I think probably it was meant just for when the kids were kids, mm. and then once they were adults, it was kind of like, well, we didn't make this a particularly convincing lie, but we're still not going to say anything, and the kids just kind of yeah figured it out. Figured it out. And it took someone coming in from the outside to be like, no. <laughs> okay, we can't just not talk about this. Yeah. yeah. I hope yeah. that that uh, like daughter-in-law's tone was like – sensitive well not so much sensitive but just not like this is weird what's going on and more clearly something's going on that it's probably time we open up about yeah yeah i hope so too Mm. so yeah that brings us kind of all the way back to holloway's quote about huntley being the one who knew the most about wonder woman it's really likely that she wanted to keep reporters off the trail of Byrne and her relationship with Marston, because obviously Byrne had a huge input into Wonder Woman, mm. both in terms of the like um, resemblance between the two women, uh, the fictional and real, and also the fact that she did some of the writing. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's likely that when, when Hollow repeatedly said, you know, go to Marjorie Huntley, it was just kind of a way to keep attention away from their family. Oh, yeah, like just get away from my – don't look too close over here. Go yeah. talk to her. Yeah, and certainly oh, Huntley yeah. was involved mm-hmm. with Wonder Woman, but I feel it's probably likely that Byrne was even more heavily involved. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, so given the children's lack of knowledge regarding their own parentage, it seems unlikely that any romantic or sexual relationship between Holloway and Byrne would have been discussed with them. Mm-hmm. And – Given the extensive discussions of female sexual and romantic relationships in Marston's literature, their meetings in Keatley's house, their continued uh, cohabitation for so many years after Marston's death, I find it 
let's say, fairly plausible that the mm. two women were in some way involved, uh, although we don't have direct evidence of this. If the women okay. weren't involved with each other, it's quite weird to think of them both being involved with and living with a man who's repeatedly, like, writing about, like, how great lesbians are and, like, how good lesbian sex is for men. And, like, that would be a deeply uncomfortable scenario if the women were not involved. I agree. <laughs> Whether or not they were in that deeply uncomfortable scenario, I don't know. But, like, that's just a thing to consider yeah uh Bolatsky says something pretty similar i realized i said earlier that that was my last Bolatsky <laughs> quote but we have one more for you yeah marston made his sexual preferences abundantly clear in his public work and writing work and writing that both olive and elizabeth helped him with yes yeah, he was a lesbophiliac who lived with two women who were willing to flout the sexual conventions of their time and for that matter of ours I suppose it's possible that at some point we will find evidence that Elizabeth and Olive were not lovers, but on the basis of what we know, I think the assumption has to be that they were. Yeah, I think so I that's agree Bolatsky's with that. point, and I think that's pretty persuasive. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. Yeah. So yeah, that pretty much concludes our episode on Wonder Woman. Is she feminist, pacifist, and queer? She gets tied up a lot. She punches <laughs> a lot of people, and she pines after Steve Trevor. But also, yeah, she kind of is all of those things. So with that, we've been Queer as Fiction. If you would like to listen to more of our episodes, you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or anywhere good podcasts are found. If you would like to follow us on social media, we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. And if you would like to support our podcast, we have a Patreon where you can pledge a monthly subscription and uh, receive perks such as being able to vote on some of our future episodes. We also have a Redbubble store where you can buy merchandise such as mugs and clothes. Uh, and acrylic featuring- block. <laughs> and an acrylic block <laughs> featuring the Queerest Fact logo. Finally, you can find all of that information, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, on our brand new website, QueerestFact.com, uh, as well as more information about us as hosts and also uh, source documents, including the source document for this episode, which will contain a lot of the screenshots of Wonder Woman comics. Uh, that I talked about. If you do listen to us on Apple Podcasts, uh, we would really appreciate it if you leave a review. It helps us reach a wider audience, and you might get your review read out on the podcast. Uh, I'm going to read a couple now. So this is a review from Scribbles Jensen. uh, (laughs) I love that name already. Who titles the review, A Winning Formula. (laughs) Not only is this one of my favorite queer podcasts, it's one of the best historical pods. Aww. Here's the winning formula. One... (laughs) Get a group of Australian queer nerd academics who genuinely enjoy each other together. Very good, very good. Two, have them select a topic, often one that avoids the Eurocentric white supremacist obsessions of most historians. Three, have one of them research a topic. Four, leave the others ignorant. (laughs) Five, put them in a room with a mic. Six. Three max now. We've gone on market. <laughs> yeah. Six. Let the hosts ignorant of the topic interrogate the researcher. <laughs> Do you feel interrogated, Jason? A little bit. <laughs> Good. I mean, we've done that job. Yeah. And voila! The result is not only informative and thorough, but a hell of a lot of fun. Especially appreciated is their rigorous and irreverent approach to historical sources. This American loves these Aussies and is so grateful to them. Thank you, Scribbles Yeah, Jensen. thank you. Also, that is exactly how it works. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. people are like, oh, so like, what's the process like here? And now we don't have to answer that question. We can just be like, please refer to Scribbles Jensen. Thank you. Um, I really enjoyed the format of that review. That was good. Uh, another review came to us from the Blackbird of Hope, which is a great name. Uh, it's called Best Theme Music Ever. <laughs> 
Impeccably researched and sensitively handled with comprehensive content warnings, this is the podcast for anyone who wants to know more about the history that has too often been hidden, ignored, or outright denied. Keep shining that light on the hidden places and rock on to your theme music. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And there's a little dancing woman emoji. Oh, Oh, that's very good. The listeners Uh, don't know that every time we record an episode, we sing along to our theme music because we cut that out in editing. But we do. Did you put that in our blooper reel? It is in our yeah, blooper reel. Excellent. Yeah. Finally, we would like to respectfully acknowledge the Yalakut Wheelam clan of the Boon Warung. We pay our respect to their elders, both past and present, and we acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land upon which this podcast is recorded. So with that, I'm Jason. I'm Alice. I'm Eli. And we'll be back on the first with a new episode. And until then, we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>